When we think of the coming of Jesus, we talk about Jesus being the Prince of Peace, among other things. And rightfully so. He is the Prince of Peace. That's what Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah chapter 9. And so we see Christmas uh, signs, uh, plaques, maybe paintings, murals. Uh, we hear that Isaiah 9, 6. He is the Prince of Peace. He came to bring peace on earth. And first and foremost, he's the Prince of Peace because he, he brings peace to us so that we, sinners, can have peace with God. But we need to make sure that we know that Jesus bringing peace as the Prince of Peace brought peace through great conflict. It meant going through great conflict for Jesus to bring us peace. And it's important that we remember that because if we don't know that, we won't really understand who Jesus is. How can he be the Prince of Peace? How can he bring us peace with God? Well, if we don't understand it was through great tension and turmoil and conflict and difficulty, then we really won't value Jesus the way we should. It's really hard to worship him for the way he should be worshipped if we don't understand the great conflict and the great difficulty to be the Prince of Peace. Not only that, we, will, we won't understand something of the, the sinfulness of human hearts. He comes as the Prince of Peace, and it seems like he's opposed on every level at every turn. And he went through all of that. It shows us something of the sinfulness of our hearts or the human heart. And finally, it's important that we know that to be the Prince of Peace, he went through all this conflict so that, how about this, we can remember just how much God loved us, even God the Son. So whenever we see Jesus being opposed by this group or Jesus being opposed by this group or Jesus having to confront this group and there's all this radical tension to the point where they want to kill him and they do, we can realize and we can know that he's going through that because he loves us so that he would therefore, as a result, secure, gain, assure peace for us who trust in him. So that's my attempt to make our conflict narrative today that we're going to look at in John 5, a Christmas sermon. <laughs> to be the Prince of Peace, he has to go through all of this or there would be no peace. And so let's keep that in mind. This is him loving us. This is him making sure we know who he is. And this is him showing just how messed up we are spiritually apart from him doing this for us. So the latter part of John chapter 5 is our text today. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and look at it. We're going to finish the fifth chapter of John today, then next Sunday on Christmas. It's a little bit of an altered schedule. We'll look at a, a specific Christmas text. Uh, we also have a Christmas Eve service. Uh, the night before, we'll look at a, Chris, a specific Christmas text, but I wanted to go ahead and stick with John today. Look with me, if you will, uh, at John 5, toward the end. Maybe I should set it up a little bit. Jesus does something wonderful, kind, compassionate. He supernaturally heals a disabled person who'd been disabled for a long, 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 long time. And so he shows that act of mercy. He does it in such a way that it's supernatural. Only the Messiah could do this. Only the promised one who was pr promised to bring healing could do this. And as a result of that, the religious leaders turn on Jesus. 
They wrongfully turn on him, but they turn on Jesus for this. They say he violates the Sabbath. And yet Jesus uses that as an opportunity, this conflict, this tension, to create a little bit more tension. But he uses it as an opportunity to make it clear to them, but also clear to us for time and eternity, using the conflict to make it clear who he really is. Who he really, truly is. So with that in mind... We can read verse 31. If I alone, Jesus says, if I alone bear witness or give testimony about myself, my testimony is not true. In other words, if I were making all of these great claims, like lots of people do, lots of religious leaders make great claims. If I alone were saying, I'm the Son of God, and I'm going to judge, I'm the Messiah, if I and I alone were saying these things, it would be legitimate to not believe me. He wasn't the first one who claimed to be the Son of God. He's not the last one who claimed to be the Son of God. He's not the first one who claimed to be Messiah. He won't be the last one, the one who would deliver people. So if I were on my own in saying these things... You'd have every right to not believe me if that's all that was happening, okay? And then what he does is he lines up three witnesses. So like courtroom kind of scene. They're putting him on trial, right? Not even a trial. They're skipping the trial and they're just concluding that he should be killed. And he turns the tables and says, all right, you want to you put me on trial, so to speak? I'm going to line up three witnesses, Okay, And what we're going to do this morning is look and hear from the three witnesses that Jesus puts forth to testify, to give testimony, to bear witness that he is not an empty talker. He's not just giving empty speech. Okay, And so if you need an outline this morning, there's witness terminology all over the place, but there are three testimonies he calls upon to prove, to authenticate, to support, to substantiate his claim to be none other than the Son of God, the long-awaited one who would deliver and save and reconcile. Okay? It's a great, this is a preacher's outline. Okay? It's right there for us. Three witnesses, three testimonies that all support the claim of Jesus so that we can understand his love, we can understand who he is, we can understand even something of who we are. Number one, supporting testimony number one, the testimony of John the Baptist. The testimony of John the Baptist. How about verse 32? Look there with me if you would. There is another, Jesus says, who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. In chapter 1 of John's Gospel account, we learned about John the Baptizer. Or we can call him John the Baptist. Presbyterians don't like to call him John the Baptist because then it kind of gives credence to Baptists. Uh, They call him John the Baptizer. So if you're a Presbyterian, I'll call him John the Baptizer for you. Um, But most of us, normal folk, um, call him John the Baptist. And no, this wasn't the Baptist denomination or anything like that, but he's the one who baptizes. Sorry, I couldn't resist. His testimony, he's saying, John the Baptist's testimony about me was true. Chapter 1, we learned about it. And what did John the Baptist say? Does anybody remember? John the Baptist said things like, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
He's the one who's going to bring atonement. He's the one who's going to bring forgiveness. He's the one who's going to bring reconciliation. Behold, look to Him. And Jesus says, there's a witness for you. And what He said about me is true. Interestingly enough, John the Baptist also said that Jesus came before Him. I think it was in verse 40. Even though John the Baptist was born before Jesus. He's even giving an indicator that Jesus is more than a mere human being. And so here Jesus is saying, I've got a testimony for you. It's John the Baptist, and he would agree with me. So what I'm saying is not mere emptiness. How about verse 33? You sent to John, he's talking to the religious leaders of the day, the Bible officials, if you will, of Judaism. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. That was in chapter 1 as well. What the, what the religious leaders wanted to find out is, why in the world is everybody listening to John? The people are going in droves. It says, it says things like, all Jerusalem is going out to John. And so John is this, this magnet, and everybody's going. And, and Jesus here is saying, remember, you sent an official group of investigators, and they heard the same thing from John that I'm saying. How about verse 34? Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Ultimately, I don't need this. Ultimately, I don't need this testimony from from a human being. He could argue that way. And I don't need your affirmation either. But I'm saying what I'm saying for your benefit. Even the controversy, if you will, and Jesus is fully engaged in the controversy, you see this glimmer of love. Maybe it's not just a glimmer. I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this so that you might be saved. You should listen to John. What did John do? John said, repent. He talks about wrath, judgment. So when Jesus here says that you'll be saved, he's talking about saved from judgment, saved from wrath, according to chapter 1. And you see where Jesus is kind of turning up the burners? That assumes that these religious leader, Bible experts, the people, the ones the people are trusting, that if Jesus says that you would be saved, that assumes what? That they're not saved. I'm doing this for you. The conflict is for your benefit. How about verse 35? He, John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp. What do lamps do? If they're burning and shining in your house, quick, go home. But in the first century, (laughs) if if it's burning and shining, a lamp does what? It, It gives light, right? And light brings clarity. He was a burning and shining lamp. And then notice, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. There was acceptance. Temporary acceptance. But there, yeah, that John, he's calling the people to repent. Good job. People, those people, you know, those people out there, they need to do some repenting. They need to get right. And so they, the religious leaders, were fans of John the Baptist. They were supportive of John the Baptist until the flame burned a little too close to home. 
Matthew's gospel account records John the Baptist saying to them, these religious leaders Jesus is engaging, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he calls them snakes. What are you doing here? See, that, that light that brings clarity brought a little too much clarity. Because it's one thing for people to say, oh yeah, those bad people, they need repenting. We all, need, we all know people who need to do some repenting. Because we all know people who are worse than us, right? And John the Baptist aims at them. Because they need to repent as well. They need to be saved based upon what Jesus says. They're lost. Blind leading the blind. John was the real deal, Jesus is saying. And Jesus is, in a sense, even, how about this? In a sense, calling on the testimony of the religious leaders. Because they affirmed John, until they didn't like John anymore. But at least for a time they did, until it cut too close to home. So, testimony or witness number one, John the Baptist. He affirms Jesus, that he's the extraordinary one who comes to bring redemption, who comes to bring forgiveness. So Jesus isn't a mere talker. Okay? So let's move on to the next one. Let's move on to the next supporting eyewitness or testimony. Number two, the testimony of Jesus works. The testimony of Jesus works. What he does, his actions. Verse 36 says, look there with me if you would. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. If I could just read between the lines just for a second in the white spaces and cross-reference to Matthew eleven eleven, where Jesus says John the Baptist is the greatest man who ever lived up until his time. The last of the Old Testament prophets, so to speak, even though he's in the New Testament. Because he's the one who's the forerunner. He's the one who comes before Messiah. He's the last one to say, get ready, he's coming. Because then he comes. And Jesus says, I've got a testimony that's even better than him. In, sense, in a sense, we could say, it's better than the best. If John the Baptist is the best. It's greater than that of John. How about 36? Let's keep reading where Jesus says, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. So notice that it's the works now. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. What works are those? We, we could answer the question, what, what works is he talking about? Given to him by the Father, we could say, they're the works of Messiah. They're the works of the Christ. And we've already been seeing them in John's Gospel account. He's been doing the things that Messiah is supposed to do. He changes the water into wine, which is symbolic from the Old Testament of great blessing, right? Not war, not conflict. It's feasting. It's enjoyment. Ah, Messiah does that. Not only that, Messiah brings healing, brings restoration. And he has done that on multiple occasions. He's the one who brings the healing. He's the one who brings the restoration. He's doing the works of Messiah. He's the one who comes to be the Savior of the world, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles. That's what Messiah is supposed to do. We saw that with the Samaritans being saved. 
He will come and judge, which is what the Messiah is to do. We just heard about that from Daniel chapter 7 as the Son of Man. He's going to forgive. That's what He can do. He's going to be the substitute for sinners. That's a work He's called to do. He's going to satisfy God's righteous requirements in every way necessary. It's the works He's come to do. And those works are greater than they testify more loudly and more authoritatively and more clearly than John, even. We're not going to take the time to go there, but in Luke chapter 4, yeah, Luke chapter 4, where uh, the, the scene is Jesus in Nazareth, and Jesus is there in Nazareth and unrolls the scroll, right? Or the scroll is unrolled. And he goes to Isaiah 61 and he reads a messianic text and it talks about the kinds of things we've been talking about. Healing, restoration, even for the Gentiles, not just for the Jews. And and then it says that it was fulfilled in him. Okay, it's fulfilled in him. His works, they're uh, messianic works that he does. So in other words, Jesus isn't, isn't ever saying, just take my word for it. No, take John's word for it. No, take my actions' word for it. Time and time and time and time again, they testify. I'm doing the works that my Father gave me to do. We can pause now and say, this is good. This is important for you and for me to know that we don't have faith in faith, which is another way of saying faith in self. We don't have faith in a a, a mere human being. We're trusting in the one that we're supposed to be trusting in. The dots are rightly connected. And isn't it interesting that apart from this conflict we wouldn't have such clarity. We wouldn't have such clarity on, oh, this is how He can be our Prince of Peace. This is how He can bring reconciliation between us and God if He's that one. And so we can even be thankful for these these crazy conflicts and He's living through them and loving us even enough to do so. Now it's worth a moment before we move on to the third testimony. It's worth a moment just sort of I don't know, enjoying some of the, 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 the profound awesomeness of, of what Jesus just said as it would relate to who He is, as it would relate to His relationship to His Father. So to be off target just a little bit, uh, off task just a little bit, just to notice how fantastic and, and significant it is for Jesus to say, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish is worth thinking about. You've got the loyal son, right? Who's been given works to do by his loving father. And he is doing them. He most certainly will do them. So sometimes we talk about the divine purpose. Sometimes in... in Bible teachers, sometimes Bible teachers talk about 
the intra-Trinitarian purpose or plan. The Spirit's not emphasized here, but He will be later in John. Just think about Jesus, the loyal Son. This is what my Father sent me to do. We would know that this was purposed before time ever even began, pre-Genesis 1-1, in light of Ephesians 1. The Father gives the Son works to do, and the Son comes as a faithful, loyal Son to do these things. It's significant. Sometimes, if you want, I mean, if you want to get your money's worth, those of you who like words in foreign languages, um, <laughs> to feel like you're really scholarly, this is what theologians call the pactum or the pactum salutis. The pact, right? The agreement of salvation. Pactum salutis. The Father and the Son committing to do these things, and if they commit to do these things, they most certainly, absolutely, without question, are going to happen. It's exciting. It's exciting when you think that that we're the ones who benefit. And then we're going to get into John and Jesus saying things like, I will lose none of them. The ones you gave me, Father, I won't lose any of them. Well, he's the loyal son and the works he was given to do, he will do. It really is better than we thought it was. What's happening between the father and the son. Okay, back to normal language. No more Latin. Now you can wow all your friends and really confuse them and say, what kind of weird church do you go to? <laughs> you know, by the way, as, as an aside, a lot of the Protestant reformers would go out of their way to not use language that wasn't the language of the people. So even not using Greek and Hebrew from biblical texts, even though they would study in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. But they went out of their way to do it because they're responding to what had been for so long, and that would be the clergy knowing the Bible and knowing the things of God, and the laity not knowing the Bible and not knowing the things of God. And so they wouldn't, like we do sometimes today, say, well, in Greek it means this, in Hebrew it means this, and try to... No, we want to make sure that people that are hearing us know that their Bible teaches the very thing we're teaching and they can know these things too. Which I think is kind of cool to know. Not that we can't learn from languages. Everything has its place, I guess. And for you theologues, I wanted you to know about the Pactum Salutis. And now we have Google, so you can just look it up anyway, right? <laughs> Let's move on. Third testimony. The testimony of the Father and His written Word. The testimony of the Father and His written Word. And, and just so you know, at this point in time, man, oh man, things are uh, escalating. More conflict, more tension, and, and Jesus is taking the gloves off if He hasn't already taken them off. And again, you can see that as, man, Jesus is kind of the Bible bully. No, see it as Jesus is the one who loved these folks and he loves us because if he hadn't done these things, if he hadn't dressed them down, so to speak, how would we know who Jesus really is? And how would we have clarity of thought about who he genuinely is and, and how extraordinary salvation truly is? So he does this because he's 
He is the truth, but he also does this as, as a benefit to us so that we would know these things. How about verse 37? This is the last testimony that Jesus will call upon. 37 says, And the Father who sent me has himself. So notice that he's making it clear. Has himself. It's personal. This is underscored. Born witness about me. He could mean at Jesus' baptism, when Jesus is there and the Spirit descends and the Father speaks from heaven, this is my Son, behold, this is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. There's a testimony from the Father. Maybe that's what he has in mind. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. I'm more prone to think, even though that's true, that what he has in mind about the Father's testimony, this is my Son, based upon what we're going to read, the Father's testimony in Scripture. The Father's testimony in the Bible is the third testifier, the third witness. You want to know that Jesus isn't just making stuff up and just isn't, uh, you know, giving a sales pitch or making bold claims? John testifies, his works testify, and his Father, in particular, his Father's Bible. His Father's Word testifies. The Old Testament testifies. Man, things are going to get dicey. Jesus is going to turn the defense into an indictment. How about verse 37 where it goes on to say, His voice, that is His Father's voice, you have never heard. Zing! Is what just happened there. Talking to the religious elite, religious leaders who pride themselves in being Bible experts and being devoted to God. And he says, his voice, and then Jesus violates the always and never rule. But if you're Jesus, you can. Because he knows. You've never heard him. You've never heard God before. Wow. Jesus is the rake. And they just stepped on the rake and hit him in the face, is what happened there. I mean, this is just, wow. You've never heard the voice of God. And he means in Scripture, based upon the context, verse 37 goes on to say, his form you've never seen. I think what he's getting at is, is, is you don't know the first thing about God. No one's actually seen God, the Bible would say, but he's manifest himself. He's made himself known and visible in unique kinds of ways with people like Jacob, Abraham, Moses, Isaiah. But I, I think that the idea here is you, 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 you have no idea what you're talking about. You, you don't know the first thing about God. You're not connected with the true Israel. You're not connected with those true prophets who did see God in ways. So you have never heard, you've never seen, right? He's, he's calling them without knowledge. How about 38? And you do not have his word abiding in you. Abiding, some of your translations might say dwelling. His, you don't know His Word. It's not in you. See, that's what you want. 
We talk about that even as believers. We, we want to have Christ's Word ritually dwelling in us. We want to know Scripture. We want to meditate on Scripture so that we know who God is, so that we can rightly worship Him. And that involves our thinking. And that will then influence the way we live our lives. So we want to hide His Word in our hearts. We want to take it in like it's food because it brings us spiritual sustenance, so to speak, when we know God. And He's saying, you don't have God's Word abiding in you. You're not controlled by God in your living or your thinking or your worshiping. And again, just think about it. You're going to talk to the people who are the most revered, the most respected. They're known as Bible experts. They know the original languages. They know the original culture because they're living in it. <laughs> At least in a sense. You don't know the first thing about the Bible. You've never experienced God. And His Word most certainly is not abiding in you. These are the Bible memorizers. These are the, Bi these are the people that would pride themselves on having it abide in them, continue in them. This is where we say, I don't believe I would have said that. This is also where we should observe that it's possible to be a Bible expert and not know the first thing. which is kind of scary. Well, we haven't come up for breath for a while, have we? This is intense. But I think the situation is intense. He's not letting them come up for air. So what proof does Jesus offer? Let's watch Jesus prove it to these Bible experts. By the way, they're, they're real Bible experts, right? They're not like the guy who ran for president a number of years ago and said that when he was asked what his favorite New Testament book was and he said, Job. Um, <laughs> they're not those kind of Bible experts. That was a man who said he knew a lot about the Bible. Um, <laughs> they're not those kind of Bible experts. They actually know it and memorize it. Here's the proof. How about verse 38? For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You don't believe in me. The logic is this way. That proves you've never heard from God. It proves you've never experienced God. It proves his word is not abiding in you. And he's going to say more, but that right there kind of gets us... Gets us salivating a bit, at least me. It's like, that's interesting. Jesus has been so clear with his works, so clear with what he said, that if they knew that God, they would embrace his son. Maybe it helps to think of it in these terms as well. If they had believed God's previous revelation, revealing himself, and I'm not trying to say God is ever lesser, okay? But if they believed his previous revelation, and carefully, I'm going to say lesser, I don't even like to. If they believed that, certainly they would believe his greater revelation, his more explicit revelation. As revelation in theology, we say it's progressed, it's become clearer. If they believe this which maybe is a little bit harder to get your mind around, and they profess to believe it, they would certainly believe it when it stares them in the face. 
So proof that you didn't believe that is you don't believe this. If you really are devoted to my father, you would accept me. And we could understand a little bit on a human level. I mean, I, I've, had, I've had job interviews because I was the son of Lee Abendroth. Was it, they accepted me, at least to interview me, because they were friends with my dad. But if I would have gotten there and they would have insulted me and all that sort of stuff, it would have been proof that they must, they don't know my dad, or they don't like him, or they wouldn't have done that. It doesn't work perfect, perfectly, but you get the idea. Now, this part, when we get to verse 39, you, you might want to either take cover or at least slouch in your seat. Because it's going to fly. 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the Scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse. So notice, not, notice it's not innocence. There, there's moral obligation. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. I, I come doing something good for you to give you life, but you refuse to. It's terrible. But they think that their devotion to the text of Scripture is where they gain eternal life. Is there anything wrong with being devoted to the text of Scripture? No, it's right on lots of fronts. But a right thing can become wrong if we don't experience God's grace. They're devoted to the text. But they're so devoted to the text, they're devoted to the text, I shouldn't say it that way, they're devoted to the text in such a way, it's gotten to the place where they think that that's how you gain eternal life, by devotion to the text. It's no wonder they do all of these things. Because that's how you do it. That's how you gain acceptance from God. Never mind the fact that it's saying something in particular, extraordinarily, high point wise, Eternal life comes not from you being devoted. Eternal life comes from outside of you and the text tells you that. Most specifically, outside of you in the chosen one, none other than Messiah. This is terrible. This right thing becomes a wrong thing. And still what looks like the right thing is the wrong thing and it leaves them in a terrible place because these are the Bible guys. It's good that God put this in, in His Word and good that this conflict happened because we can understand His love for us, but we can also understand somewhat of the danger of, of even being fallen human beings. Maybe it helps you a little bit to try to understand. It helps me to think like the book of Hebrews. You have these legitimate realities in the Old Testament. Temple, tabernacle, holy days, day of atonement, Passover, all of these things. 
but they were never designed to be ends in and of themselves. They were meant and they were called types and shadows. Pointing forward, pointing forward, pointing forward to one who would be, to quote the Apostle Paul in Colossians, the substance. Maybe that helps a little bit. These temporary types and shadows became ends in and of themselves. They're meant to be anticipation, but they're not. Well, we should move on. Verse 41 says, I do not receive glory from people. It doesn't depend upon you accepting me. It doesn't depend upon anybody accepting me. And you're certainly not. So I don't receive glory from people. That's going to become important later. Verse 42, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. How does he know this? I know you don't have God's love in you because if you had God's love in you and you're truly representing God, you'd accept me because I'm God's son. So I know. This is like the always and never thing again. I know that you don't have God's love. I know you don't represent him. I know you don't lead for him in his place because if you did, you'd accept me. It's just crazy otherwise. 43 says, I have come in my father's name. See, that's how he knows. And you do not receive me. He's doing the works of the Father. They don't receive him. So that's why he's saying all these, uh, these powerful things. If another comes in his own name, right, to make a name for himself, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? This is crazy. This is so perverted. This is so upside down. And this is what happens to religion sometimes. They even have the right book and it shows how, how perverted the human heart can become. You don't accept me and I come doing the works of God, bearing the testimony of God, proved with testimony, with eyewitnesses. And instead what you do is you receive other people and they're trying to make a name for themselves. Ah, that's because you're trying to make a name for yourself and that's your ultimate God. Self-glorification. In the name of God, in the name of Yahweh, in the name of religion, in the name of monotheism. That's why you don't need Jesus. That's why you don't need me. We might put it in terms of they carried Bibles around. Okay, 45. Getting close to the end here. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Sounds good so far. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. How about that? By the way, just for, we do need a breather here, just for a moment. I do at least. This is this sermon first and foremost. That Jesus—it's not a sermon. Jesus' message, first and foremost, is not aimed at people in general. Okay? It's not aimed at people like you and people like, well, maybe it is at people like me. So I just want you to know, as I'm, I'm trying to reflect the intensity a little bit and trying to preach strongly and, and capture the idea, just know that Jesus is going after the religious leaders because if they're leading the people down this road, it's a terrible, terrible spiritual crime. Okay? But think of it in these terms. He's doing that, yes, for their benefit, that they might be saved, he even says earlier. 
but he's doing it for, for the benefit of people like you and people like me and our children if we have them and people we know and love. And he's doing the harsh stuff to set the record straight so that we can really know who Jesus is. And I know sometimes we don't have much of an appetite for the harsh stuff. But it's so that the truth can be clear. It's so His love can be made clear. So that salvation can be made clear. And here, Jesus just says, I don't have to accuse you to my Father. In verse 45. Because you want to know who's going to accuse you, and I don't mean you, I mean these Jewish religious leaders. He says, that'll be up to Moses. Why is that a huge big deal? Because Moses is their patron saint. He's their favorite guy. He's their favorite Bible character on flannel graphs at Shabbat school on Saturday, if they have that. I mean, every, I mean he, he, he's the man. Well, sometimes it's Abraham and sometimes it's perhaps another Solomon. But you get the idea. Moses. Moses is the human author of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. He is, he's our guy. Later on in John's gospel, I think it's in chapter 8, I can't remember, it's in my notes, but I'm not going to look. Later on in John's gospel, they're going to say, we're disciples of Moses. If we can just follow Moses. Okay, and Jesus says, Moses on judgment day, is what he's getting at, he'll be your accuser, not me. Why would Jesus say that? Because Moses got it. Moses didn't think that devotion to the Bible, devotion to the Scripture, is what was going to earn his way to heaven. Okay? Moses understood. They've hijacked Moses and made him mean something other than he intended. It was John chapter 9, by the way, not John chapter 8. Verse 46 says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. If you would have believed those first five books, you'd believe me because Moses was writing about me. 47. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Lots could be said there about Jesus' words and Moses' words being on equal plane, which is significant. And earlier we talked about the Father's testimony, which is significant, but we're not going to get, in that, get into that today. But if they really believed Moses' writings, they would believe Jesus' words. Now, ever so briefly, we could at least stop and say, how is it that Moses talked about Jesus? And I'll be honest and say, I don't know exactly. But we have some pretty good footing to stand on, even if we're going to go for the the low-lying fruit. How did Moses write about Jesus or Christ? Well, certainly he wrote of the necessity of a substitute. Okay? A perfect substitute who would fulfill the divine law. In Leviticus 18, Moses promises eternal life to everyone who's perfect. If you do God's law, you'll have life. 
And we know he's talking about eternal life because Jesus quotes it and talks about eternal life in Luke chapter 10. So Moses for sure talks about Christ in this sense. It's the necessity. Because if God's law says, be perfect, you do this and you'll be given eternal life, Moses can't even meet that. Nobody can meet that. There has to be someone who comes from the outside who's going to meet that, and that would be Messiah, the one who came to save his people from their sins. So that's at least the starting point, Leviticus 18.5, Luke chapter 10, verse 28, Matthew 5. Moses also wrote of Jesus because he wrote of Jesus in the sense that he gave types and shadows, sacrificial system, the holy day holidays, Again, the book of Hebrews kind of helps us to understand that, how they weren't ultimate realities. They were in anticipation. Even the author of Hebrews who says the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. There has, there's built into it. Even the fact that it's called the old covenant, there's something built in to say there's got to be a new covenant that will come. Probably enough just... Well, I I guess also uh, types and shadows. You've got rest. Jesus is the Sabbath rest. You have Passover. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Back to Genesis chapter 3, there's even a promise that's given. So those are just some ways we could say Moses wrote of him. In addition, Moses himself did say in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. And he goes on to say more that's significant, but it's not in me. It's in somebody who's like me, but it's not in me, okay? Well, we need to, 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 to wrap up all the conflict. Hopefully we see that the conflict is on purpose. The conflict is for us. The conflict is to benefit us. The testimonies are there. And all of this is on the path to being able to truly give us peace. So when we say he is the Prince of Peace, it's peace through conflict. I like what we say at Christmas time a lot as well. In Luke chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. And those he is pleased with are those who hear him and his father's testimony and accept it to be true. And that actually is the way to our peace. We should pray and conclude our service. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for even the conflict, even though we don't like like conflict much. We're thankful that he did this and that he exposed the religious leaders so that we wouldn't still even be believing them perhaps today. That he is the one who comes from the outside. He is the one who does everything perfectly. He is the one who is treated as if he did everything wrong, even though he never did anything wrong, as he experienced your judgment and your wrath on the cross. And we're thankful that he's the one who was victoriously raised from the dead on our behalf. And we're thankful that according to your sovereign grace, we can believe in Jesus and experience peace with you. Thank you for this week. Please give us opportunities to speak appropriately about Jesus. Uh, please give us opportunities to, to show uh, love for believers and unbelievers alike as we would want to imitate Jesus. And we look forward to being together again. In Jesus' name, amen.